2: I asked the Prime Minister How good is Australia? Please explain oh,
0: Mate, this is just impossible Too many people were confused uh, you bet you are uh, you bet I am I have always believed in miracles That's not a policy
3: Not now, not ever I
2: mean
3: in... These comments are completely inappropriate
0: oh, I'm sure she's right you
3: Well, know, I ain't spending any time on it
0: how pathetic! You're a classic space invader. Disgusting mud sucking creatures! You should be ashamed of yourselves!
2: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste nice
0: of democracy. Very good. <laughs>
2: Hi there, thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, or indeed, for the first time, and welcome to 2020. That's right, our first episode, or should that be our first barbecue for the year, coming to you from the other side of the lake, from Capitol Hill, namely the Australian National University, and specifically from the modest studio in the otherwise prestigious Crawford School of Public Policy, here on the dust-blown, hail-pocked, smoke-addled, fire-alerted ANU campus. I'm Mark Kenny, and when I'm not writing and talking about national and international affairs in the media, I'm lucky enough to be writing and talking about these things here at the nation's finest university. Now, it's a couple of months since our final show of 2019, and hasn't it been a good summer for the country? And hasn't our government responded well? Now, normally in Australia, of course, we like our politicians to quietly go away over the summer break so we can all forget about their noisy, self-important posturing and unproductive divisions. But the summer of 2019-2020 was and is anything but normal, and this was already becoming clear to everyone from way back in August. Well, I say everyone because, of course, not everyone was off that view. Our PM figured it was pretty much business as usual. He wasn't going to let a few, how does the coalition describe them, woke inner-city greenies and raving left lunatics ratchet up the climate change case on the back of a few fires. I mean, we do always have bushfires, remember? Still, just to be safe, the PM determined that he'd make his overseas holiday a secret in the hope that A, no one would notice, B, in the event that they did, by the time they worked out he was in Hawaii with a bit of fudging and obfuscating from his media flax, it'd be a non-story because he'd be back. Wrong. The worst happened. Just as fire chiefs and state and local community leaders had warned, Australia succumbed to the most severe and extensive bushfire crisis ever experienced. Crises are usually moments when political leaders shine, even embattled ones, times when the need for leadership, guidance, understanding, additional resources and emergency services coordination trump all other divisions. The business of governing is suddenly stripped of all the competing narratives and the procedural complexities, giving way to what Barack Obama once called the fierce urgency of now. But not this Prime Minister. He abandoned his post, having indicated that one, the fires were the responsibility of the state, two, not directly attributable to climate change, and three, not that unusual anyway. Even when he came back early, Morrison was slow to get to the point, chastened perhaps by the widespread criticism and fearful of becoming the story once he visited the devastated and by then fairly angry communities. There were many awkward moments before he eventually worked out that his coal-lording insouciance in the face of a crying national need was doing his reputation material harm. This was Scott Morrison's summer, and yet even as the fires continued to burn, there would be new political problems emerging, the drawn-out sports rorts affair, which finally claimed the scalp of former Nationals Deputy Leader Bridget McKenzie, and from China the novel coronavirus, which along with the drought and fires looks like sending the economy south and perhaps the surplus with it. Joining me here are two of the nation's preeminent observers of politics and national affairs, Sky News Australia's chief news anchor, Kieran Gilbert. Welcome back, Kieran. Thanks, Mark. And journalist academic, Peter Martin, AM, who, in addition to being the economy editor at The Conversation, is a presenter of The Economist's on Radio National and is also a visiting fellow here at the Crawford School. Welcome back, Peter. We've got all the best people here, (laughs) Mark. Now, we'll leave the majority of our discussion about the bushfires for the second half of our program when we'll be joined by Siobhan McDonnell, an expert in legal anthropology whose research interests include the effects of climate change. And I might say, on another issue, we'll probably leave one aside is Brexit, which became a reality over the weekend. But keep your eye out for a midweek democracy sausage extra on that particular topic. So, Kieran, it's been a pretty wobbly start, I think, as I've just been detailing there for Scott Morrison. Uh, do you think I was fair? It's it, uh, not been good for him.
1: You were fair, absolutely fair. And he's, well, you just look at the the fact that the, before summer in the, all the polls, the Prime Minister was the preferred Prime Minister. He's now the unpreferred Prime Minister <laughs> by a long way. In fact, Anthony Albanese, the latest news poll, has a five-point lead and the Prime Minister's approval rating plummeted a dozen points. He, he has had... a a shocker, Uh, and as you quite rightly said in your editorial, moments of crisis are moments when the whole nation is watching. Mm. And these aren't often – these occurrences, as you know, as Peter knows in politics, it's very rare that you get people's attention. At a moment of crisis, you have people's attention. Mm. And Jacinda Ardern, after the Christchurch attack, handled it with aplomb, Mm. the the response – she was superb mm. and and her been... approval rating went up accordingly the the flip side of that is the prime minister's holiday and so on and i think given his summer again, he would have handled it very, very differently.
2: Yeah. And he was asked about that at the press club uh, when he made that appearance last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, he wasn't particularly eager to, to, you know, sort of get into self-reflection. Leaders, you know, generally aren't. They figure they've got so many critics, uh, Peter, that they uh, they don't usually like to uh, give them the script themselves. But uh, it was pretty obvious that uh, that was a major political mistake.
0: What I've been thinking about is what if Bill Shorten had become prime minister? Now, Think about that. I've been reading about uh, Julie Leaskin, an academic at the University of Sydney, in health communication about viruses. But uh, think about it in terms of the bushfires. The ideal method of communication is said to be to share information and to share doubts, to share what isn't known, so that the people feel they can trust you. This happened in the Tylenol crisis uh, with uh, Uh, drugs being uh, poisoned uh, in the US. The manufacturer was completely open and shared what they didn't know. Now, that isn't what the Prime Minister has been doing, but it is what we know Bill Shorten can do. It is what Bill Shorten did in the Beaconsville mine collapse. He was the point person for the nation. Everyone, I mean, admittedly, uh, he hasn't been a good opposition leader in many other ways when there isn't a crisis. But in the same way as a crisis, you know, said to have made Churchill twice, Mm -hmm. um, maybe, (laughs) maybe just think of what might have been had Bill Shorten been the leader, not in an ordinary time, but at a crisis
2: and whether that would have made a huge difference it certainly may have made a a big psychological difference morrison was very slow uh, to bring in uh, the uh, you know the defense forces which were, you know were eventually deployed uh, because he was playing that whole argument about you know who was whose responsibility it was that the, the commonwealth couldn't come in unless the states had asked it to and so forth um one imagines that um, if uh, Bill Shorten had been leader at the time and who had been much more closely in touch with the people on the ground had been actually in those fire-affected communities, that a number of things would have been more urgent. Had he
0: seen to be telling the truth and seen to know what was going on? It's more of a re- relationship thing. But again, it had um, there not been a war, Churchill might never have been seen as a figure like that.
2: Mm. Kieran, how much do you think um, the the sort of background to this affected Morrison's His performance. I mean, essentially, the coalition's on the back foot over climate change. You've got these bushfires raging. It's a completely different proposition, really, if you've been out there on the front foot, advocating for tougher emissions controls, uh, you know, cuts, uh, advocating for a transformation of the economy, trying to get involved in the international diplomatic effort to get the rest of the world to do more. If you've been there, then you can step forward in this crisis. If you've been on the other side of it, uh, maybe not so much.
1: Well, you're second guessing, aren't you, yourself, from maybe the Instinct to say, look, we will advocate more forcefully on the international stage. We, when a middle power, we will step up. And even though we're 1.3% emissions, that we will recognize that similar nations amount to 40% of world emissions, if you have a, you know, look, at carbon footprint of 1.5% or thereabouts. But he can't do that because of the internals. That's right. You say that is a very interesting point you make in terms of the backdrop because. Matt Keane, the Environment Minister of New South Wales, of the Liberal Party, represents the tip of the iceberg. With you know, excuse the pun, within the Liberal Party, moderates. There are many in the federal party who have a similar view to Matt Keane. but this they
0: is the New South Wales Minister for Environment. This is the New South Wales. Scott Minister.
1: Morrison derided
0: as saying, "No one knows no who one he knows, he knows is, who he is,"
1: but he was saying, "Of course,
2: climate change is part of it." There are many Liberals who are of that view. Was Um, this the moment when Scott Morrison could have made a significant adjustment? Like did this give him the cover and the authority to do something to make a shift here that he needs to make but wasn't able to make before then? it's,
1: it's It's very interesting, Mark, right now. You look at his situation. His polling numbers have dropped. He did win a miracle, you know, surprise election last year. But still within the party room, my sense of it is that his support is a mile wide but an inch deep. You know, there's the the support around Peter Dutton that remains, that right cohort that don't really have a lot of love for Scott Morrison, let's be frank. Um, They they like the fact that he won, but he's got to still be sensitive to their views, and many of them um, aren't convinced at all about the impact of climate change on the fires or anything else.
2: Yes. Well, as you say, uh, um, Peter, uh, we have you here to talk about some economic things, among other things. You're free to talk about anything you like, obviously. But um, uh, you, you uh, released in your role at the uh, conversation last week, the results of a survey of a series of economists, uh, forecasts. Tell us what that said.
0: 24 leading economists, they tend all to have the same sort of view and it's not good. And I, I should say that uh, we started the survey, you've got to give them notice, uh, in December when the bushfires were only, uh, you know, minor, so minor that the the prime minister thought it could go away, um, finished on the twentieth of uh, January when they were, you know, the the worst was apparent. Um, so the the survey sort of spans that, but uh, probably doesn't take full account of it. So essentially, before we knew the worst of the fire, the worst of the fires, the forecasts were for the worst economic performance in 30 years. So uh, economic growth, uh, I know people think it's a uh, you know a, a nebulous concept, but uh, it helps have the numbers in mind. Um, usually, Australia has had economic growth beginning with a two, two point something, or a three, three point something. Occasionally more than that, rarely less than that. Now, um, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank work out our potential growth. That is to say, Uh, how much living standards could improve, uh, without harming inflation and using up too many resources. The Treasury's estimate these days, it's wound its estimate back. It used to be 3%. It's, its estimate is precise, two and three quarters percent. So that's, if you like, what we could be doing to ourselves. That's how much better we could be making life. And anything less than that is absolutely wasted wasted in the form of unemployment and the forms of resources not being used. Um, Economic growth has fallen uh, over the last year to uh, 1.7%, right? That's historically low. For the last three quarters, it's been that. The forecast is for it to remain below 2%. That is remain with a one in front of it for another four quarters. So at the end of this year, it will have been seven consecutive quarters. Now, we haven't had economic growth that low, Forget the global financial crisis. We never had that long a period of low economic growth. We haven't had it since the early 90s recession. We are talking about a ultra-low growth in living standards. And you've got to bear in mind populations growing at 1.4% a year, right? So ultra-low growth in living standards per person. We are looking down the barrel before the bushfires, before the coronavirus, We are looking down the barrel, according to the best economic forecasts, these include people such as Warwick McKibben, who used to be on the Reserve Bank Board, former OECD, IMF, Treasury economists who who, uh, now work in various universities. We are looking down the barrel of the worst economic growth in most Australians' adult lives. That's how bad things looked. Before those crises that that 's what the survey says now, of course, forecasters don't always get it right, but that's how things were looking before the unexpected happened
2: so that's a that's a pretty dire situation i mean uh, what uh, what does the then when you overlay the effect of the bushfires, but particularly i suppose the big unknown at the moment, the thing that 's unfolding, which has Global implications: the coronavirus, the uh, you know effectively closing of the borders with China at the moment, as as a number of countries are doing. I mean, Australia is extraordinarily exposed to the Chinese economy; we're very dependent on it. What what does what does the coronavirus mean for it, those It sorts even of goes numbers? beyond
0: our exposure to the Chinese economy, which will probably be okay in the sense that um, China, to the extent there's an no economic downturn, will want to spend its way out of it. Uh, build more things that aren't necessary or that are necessary. So they are dialing building in hospitals stimul- very quickly. They're so, dialing in stimulus you know, they're, right they're, now, they're, aren't they? They'll need iron ore, right? Yeah. But um, it, regardless of what happens to the Chinese economy, we're exposed, uh, you know, 20% roughly of uh, uh, university students uh, come from, uh, foreign students come from China and, uh, of, of course, with tourism. So... We're exposed in that way. the The most immediate impact on the economy is likely to be the bushfires. You're looking at the last quarter, the uh, three months to December. This quarter, um, tourism. Most of the tourism money normally comes, uh, you know, over the summer mm-hmm. season. Uh, that will have gone. Tourism infrastructure will be destroyed. One of our um, uh, participants in the survey, one who uh, altered her results at the very end, right, to take account is of the view that a technical recession is likely. Now, a technical recession is two quarters of uh, growth going backwards in the quarter. Uh, that would be the December quarter. That would be the March quarter, um, just because of the hit of the bushfires. Now, there are worse things than a recession, uh, especially if it's short-lived. But um, what that would do to our sense of ourselves, it's a sort of self-fulfilling mm. thing, right, um, would be awful so the the risk of that is uh is immediate it 's in the in the quarter we 're now in now we don 't get the results for two and a half months after the quarter so so we won 't really know but um uh, you know, <laughs> The government talked about jobs and growth. Okay, we, we do yeah, not have economic promise, growth. Yeah, we do not have growth um, on jobs. Yes, jobs are still being created, but nothing like uh, the kind of jobs that people want. That is to say, underemployment is, is very high. And unemployment, as uh, the Reserve Bank believes Australia could have an unemployment rate safely as low as 4.5%. It's above 5% and the forecasts are actually for it to climb from 5.1 to 5.4. So uh, I think the thing about the coronavirus is, uh, as I say, it depends how it plays out. We don't know. We've got a better idea about the bushfires and uh, in the immediate, you know, the months we're in now, there's a considerable
2: risk. Kieran, that all spells politically tricky times for a government Mm. that's already on the defensive. And, of course, we've just really got to that kind of uh, climax moment of the sports rorts affair with the resignation of Bridget McKenzie. And as we record this podcast... The Nats are considering what the implications of that are for their own leadership. Who replaces her? Hmm. Whether that sparks wider changes in the Nats has been, you know, Barnaby Joyce has put his hat in the ring, and so forth. Uh, probably by the time people listen to this, that may have been resolved. But um, it's all uh, very difficult. Has Mackenzie's departure closed this off or taken the heat out of this issue for this, the Prime Minister? No, not one bit. Not one bit. And
1: and it's not just Labor that wants another scalp. Some of her own colleagues have been backgrounding members of the gallery, including myself, as to the grants that were made elsewhere, including in Michael McCormack's seat that benefited the Deputy Prime Minister's son's football club. So this is the start, uh, I think, really not the end for the government on this issue. They've got a report from Phil Gatins, the Prime Minister's former political chief of staff, a long-time public servant, Treasury official, now Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary, that differs fundamentally with the Auditor-General, the audit office. So you've got public servants, sure, Phil Gageens, but also a long-time political staff are writing a report at odds with the Auditor-General and the government's trying to say, okay, that's it, let's move on. But it's we, worse
0: because we can see one and not the other, right?
1: Well, exactly right. We can't see the other. So this is not the end of it. Uh, Labor will continue to push, but unfortunately for Scott Morrison as well, This is also going to be the source of internal instability, as we're seeing already with the Nats
2: uh, and the effort to try and undermine McCormack. Yeah, that's what's really fascinated me with the the sort of strength with which the government, I heard uh, Matthias Cormann saying this, I've heard other ministers saying it, I've heard the prime minister saying that, uh, you know, they're happy with the way the sports uh, grants program was run. They disagree with the Auditor General's uh, uh, interpretation that it was, you know, highly politicized. Uh, Gaetchen finds that there was no evidence of undue uh, um, advantage to marginal seats. Which is uh, we're going to have to exactly
0: sort of the opposite of what is ex- written in the words in front of us in the yeah, report. From That's the right, and, yeah.
2: and all of this seems to uh, operate um, kind of abstracted or, or uh, um, to the uh, without taking due consideration for those sports organisations, those community organisations all around the country yeah. who, in good faith put in applications, applications which we subsequently learned scored quite highly on the criteria, were perfectly eligible, mm-hmm. and scored more highly on the criteria than a number of projects is, all around the country. It's
1: rancid for the government, yeah. you know, in term, for every one of those community groups that missed out. Absolutely. And I would suspect that they'll probably end up funding most of them, if not all of them. But as Peter rightly pointed out, this Gatons report, you know the, fu- the fundamental uh, difference with the Auditor General, they're taking the Dennis DeNuto approach, aren't they? Just look, that's the vibe of the report. We're not going to release it. Yeah. It's the vibe. Don't worry. Trust us. It's like, well, I'm sorry, we, we can't trust you because of exactly how you carried out the sports sports program in the first place. And as I say, I think ministers will be targeted as well now by Labor. They want more scalps. But fundamentally, as well, they'll be looking to see if they can pin prime ministerial
2: staff. There's a Senate inquiry looming on this. Mm. Um, we saw that very kind of political, theatrically political exercise um, that, you know, with uh, I think Tim Wilson led that to. Uh, House inquiry around the country on the franking credits thing before the last election, you know, getting people to stand up and talk about how they were about to be dudded and, in all mm. kinds of ways. And this was politically quite uh, difficult for Labour in opposition. Is Labour about to return the favour by, by, by going around the country perhaps and talking to these sports organisations and getting them to detail why? Who were highly
0: rated and who put in 100 hours, uh, some say, doing their submission. There's one thing in the Auditor-General's report, and I must say uh, I'm uh, uh, guilty of only having read it on the weekend, only having read it just now, right? But, you know, you want to actually think, you know, I want to actually see mm, what's there. Absolutely. And uh, what's in it, uh, aside from what's been publicised, uh, is a more general criticism of the program, um, a, a program which has wasted all of these uh, these people's time. It's that the criteria were so easily met that it would get many, many more applications than there was money, um, and this is this is a, a criticism of design. So by design, you were going to have hundreds of. Uh, many, many hundreds of clubs throughout the nation who were going to be spending amazing amount of time in a very short time frame, um, amazing amount of time working on applications and necessarily most of them weren't going to succeed, even if it was done properly. Um, so th- there's, it's almost as if uh, the government even without doing the political thing, has dudded sports organisations.
1: There was never the money there. Yeah, exactly. And and one of the things that this program came up with that I, I'd never heard of before, but a novel way to refer to it was reverse pork barrelling. i never heard <laughs> no. of that. That's what the minister stumped yeah. up. But a whistleblower from her office told my colleague, Andrew Clennell, that um, – they raised concerns at the time. This thing stinks. Yeah. And they raised the concern repeatedly. And then at the point when the auditor said, we've got to look at it, they start shifting some of the spending to Labor seats to say, no, 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 look, we've got a comparable amount. So it was really just to cover their backsides.
2: Yes. And will, will this um, other argument that they're running, which is essentially that um, public servants are there to advise ministers of government not to direct them. I mean does that how does that wash Peter you're a former public servant uh, back in a in a previous life it uh
0: uh, you exist to advise the government and then to carry out what they want. But this is quite different uh, in that this is a statutory authority. Precisely,
2: you do it according to a law.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and this statutory authority, it wasn't clear. Um, the Auditor-General said that there was no clear ability for the minister to make the decisions, which is actually a reflection on the Sports Australia board, if true, because it may have allowed the minister to do something. Uh, you'd be brave if you said no, but uh, it looked as if they didn't say no and allowed the minister to do something they shouldn't do. Um, Morrison's shtick is, he gave a speech to public servants uh, shortly after he got the job, that uh, public servants are there to implement the will of the elected government. And this is and has never been uh, the complete story. The complete story is that public servants are there to be the eyes and ears of the government to say, you want to do that? Well, if you do that, it'll work out this way, it'll work out that way, maybe it will, you should be aware of that. that That's what you've got, you know, 800 people in the Treasury. That's what they are there for. They are not there merely to implement the will of the government. And the government, yes, it always has a final decision, albeit not in the, necessarily in the sports case. Uh, the government. Uh, would be crazy to, if you like, blindfold itself by, uh, as, as Morrison said when he addressed the public servants, by merely deciding what to do, it and a handful of political advisors, and then saying, oh, yeah, implement that. that is, it's like driving blindfolded.
2: Is there, Kieran, do you think, a damage, longer-term damage to the government standing to Morrison's leadership? From the defences that he's put up here because it really does operate at the moment as a kind of a, a new statement of values of the government which is effectively uh, – they're not uh, wanting to be accountable on this and they're very strongly arguing the idea that the government has this power to simply use taxpayers' money – in these highly discretionary ways. Mm. Well, th- that's part of the
1: reason why I think the Gaitchen's report has ended up with the conclusions that it has, because they can't cede ground on the whole program because so many of the ministers, including the Prime Minister's office, are implicated. So they can't let the program die or at least be exposed as being a total pork-barrelling rort, mm. which it is. They can't ex- They can't concede that because then... Politically, they're all vulnerable, really, because so, they've, so, they've so many to, of the ministers have got grants and so on yeah. in their own
2: seats. So they've had to hang Mackenzie on this technicality. Uh, technicality, I've likened to booking a bank robber for double parking the getaway car. Yeah. Um, really, this technicality of yeah. having you know the, the Wangaratta Gun Club membership, which was less than three hundred dollars, less than the threshold required for her to have to well, put that on. Exactly,
1: that. they've got three ways they're trying to stem. The damage here. One is to get rid of her. Mm. Two is to say we're going to accept the fourth recommendation of the Auditor General, which was basically to strengthen the transparency uh, of any ministerial overall of a statutory body. That's the fourth one. So basically, it's more mm. information when you mm. do pork barrel. I guess you've got you've to, got to document it. You've got to do. <laughs> yeah, you've got to document it, and the third. The other um, one is by just saying, look, we're going to adopt that. We're going to um, get rid of her. And then I think the third one is to fund them all. I think they're going to end up funding all the sports programs and just say, look, let's just shut it down. We don't want every organization, as Peter said, and, and you mentioned as well, Mark, like uh, the roller derby, for example, in Gippsland, 98 points it got in terms of merit, local community group doing good work they spent hours preparing they didn't get a dime so because they were in a safe seat because they're in a safe seat even
2: though it's a national seat but because that's Darren
1: Chester's. exactly seat, yeah. the merit was there the money wasn't and i think now they don't want all of these groups to be basically instant lobby groups against the government because you know that they will be yeah it's a good point it's the
0: surplus point. by the way forecast to be almost non-existent now it was going to be 7 billion this financial year then in the Mid-year budget update. It was going to be five, now two. That was before the the virus, before the bushfires, and someone should ask. It's too late now. Why the hell is the Commonwealth Government funding local sports organisations? But this is going to increase uh, the money, and uh, at the margins, make uh, what is scarcely, you know, forecast a surplus at all, uh, uh, even smaller. Uh, or uh, maybe there won't be a surplus, and they've been walking away from that.
2: Well, they have been. Uh, it took them a long time to do it, but uh, the government's now arguing. Uh, Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, is now saying uh, uh, to whoever will listen that this is why you have surpluses so that you can spend them at these times. Or why you don't have surpluses. Well, I mean, that's a fair point, too. Uh, you know, in as, much as if you've got a surplus there and you don't spend it at times like these, then, uh, you know, that would be, uh, that would be unforgivable. Uh, but uh, yes, it does look like we might have ended up with, in sort of budgetary terms, five minutes of economic sunshine.
0: But spending it on the Yankee Little cl- Bowling Club is <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> not quite,
0: I think, what the Keynesian managers had in mind.
2: Perhaps not. Let's take a break. And when we return, we'll talk more about the bushfires and the impact of those uh, with uh, Siobhan McDonald, who's coming in and is lecturer here at the Crawford School.
3: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Thanks for staying around. Joining us now is Dr Siobhan McDonald, a lecturer here at the ANU's Crawford School and an expert in social and economic implications of climate change, among other things. Siobhan, you recently attended the climate talks in Madrid as part of the Vanuatu delegation. I believe you were titled drafting negotiator. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, I have had a long history of working in Vanuatu. So um, I have a very close relationship with the Minister for Foreign Affairs there, Ralph Reagan Vanu. They're in the lead up to a, a big election over there in Vanuatu at the moment. Um, we've been working together for 10 years. And last year, he asked me really to step into a new role uh, to support the Vanuatu government in drafting. So this is really... Uh, a lot of the very critical climate negotiations happen over text. And uh, so historically in Vanuatu, I've been involved in in writing a whole series of pieces of legislation. I wrote part of the constitution and a land reform package over in Vanuatu. And so I've stepped into the kind of the drafting negotiation role as well. So
2: I guess it puts you in a a really quite remarkable position where you get to see Australia from the inside, but you also get to see it, essentially from the outside as part of a delegation of another country in those critical negotiations. Yeah, so
3: what I think was perhaps even more revealing than uh, Madrid was being at the Pacific Islands Forum last year and so really watching those negotiations unfold. So uh, we had finalised the text of the Kainaki 2 declaration. Uh, There were very few issues that were left on the table when Scott Morrison arrived and really... well, the rest is history. A lot yeah. of the negotiations then had to go to the leader level and, you know, there were some very clear red lines that came in very late in the piece from an Australian perspective.
0: Just quickly to uh, update, I, I know it's history, but what, uh, what did <coughs> Australia do that, that made things sort of stop and uh, escalate?
3: So the way drafting negotiations work is that each country comes to the table uh, with a mandate And so we had had six weeks of drafting against the Australian drafting team. It had been a long and involved negotiation. We had finalised the text, but for a few very small, very technical elements, uh, we had put forward the final declaration text. The Morrison camp came in uh, the night before the leaders' meeting, looked at the text and wanted it reopened. Um, The historical kind of things that happened on the day is he wanted it sent back to the drafting committee. We said, as the Pacific Island countries, that's not appropriate. The drafting committee has completed its work. It must now go to the leaders. The leaders then sat down for a number of hours and and ran essentially what was a drafting negotiation over the text. So the key points that he became very obsessed with were the words like coal in the text. But what you'll find in the Karnaki 2 declaration is that the word coal was replaced, for example, with just transitions over fossil fuels, which actually has much broader implications from a drafter's perspective than coal alone. There are key commitments that were made in the Kainaki 2 declaration that remain in place.
2: One wonders whether it's easy to make agreements that are so far outside the political uh, lifespan of uh, you know the, the leaders who are there now. Um, much yeah. easier to do that than to do something by 2020 or 2030 even.
3: So that's what we see often with the targets that have already been made. So we know that there are some instrumental targets that the Australian governments have had commitments to in the past that become rubbery across time. But um, it's very important that we have textual commitments at a regional level. These are incredibly important geopolitical issues in the region. Uh, We have had a whole series of, of very important declarations that have come out at a regional level across the Pacific that have said climate change is the single greatest security threat across the region. These are pivotal issues. These are existential threats to a whole range of countries and Pacific Island leaders are playing very seriously around these issues.
0: I've got to ask, what was the behaviour of the Australian delegation in Madrid? You said you held up their previous commitments to them. How, How did other countries see, how did you see, (laughs) and the other people around the table, uh, Australia's behaviour?
3: There's really two answers to that question. I mean, I think the leadership has really hampered the capacity of our diplomats to operate well in these spaces. So Australia is regarded very poorly diplomatically in terms of climate change negotiation spaces. They are regarded as being in the same league as Brazil and as the United States, they are really seen internationally as climate pariahs.
2: But this is a very much a, a function of the political struggle. This is a new thing. I mean, it wouldn't have been the case. No, it definitely
3: ago. wasn't the case under the Rudd government, for example. I mean, Rudd really, for a period of time in international negotiations, championed uh, the climate negotiations. So Australia has always been. Um, you know, a little bit difficult. So even if you look at those early climate compacts that Penny Wong signed onto, you'll see that there's uh, a ratcheted set of commitments. So, you know, we we agreed to uh certain targets and then greater targets depending on mm. what the international community would hold on to. And as you say, we have to. a history
2: of that, don't we? Even going back to the Kyoto, original Kyoto yeah, Agreement, we, it, do. we negotiated those so, special terms.
3: That's right. Um However, the kinds of exemptions that Australia is asking for with carryover credits are exemptions that no other country has put on the table. The kinds of ways in which... Australia is no longer supporting the Green Climate Fund, so the, the single mechanism for climate financing internationally, which means not only do we not finance through the mechanism attached to the entire international climate framework, but we no longer hold a seat on the at the table the way we used to, right? So this is huge in terms of our diplomacy around climate finance as well. So these are really pivotal matters. When we sit across the table from the Pacific leadership, it's very hard for them to take seriously Australia's commitment in this space when we speak with, you know, with one one breath about um, being family in the Pacific and the kind of language that we enter the region with, expressing that kind of solidarity and at the same time are not prepared to address any of these existential threats to these countries and that became pivotally important in Tuvalu like you're literally sitting on an atoll nation that at certain points is only 2 meters across it is the the mm. place that the leaders meeting was held the Kainaki Hall the one that the declaration is named after is a tiny community hall and outside of each window where the leaders were were sat were sat it was so carefully staged they could see the ocean through windows on both sides right And it's in in spite of all of that, Morrison was able to thump the table and refuse, really um, a whole refuse, really those kinds of passionate entreaties. And it's as much about the way you behave as what you say.
1: How big would the would it be if the government does? scrap the carryover credits because I, I think my suspicion is uh, Peter and Martin and I were chatting about this prior to the uh, the podcast but my, my sense is that I think that they will end up scrapping it and they might do so at, at Glasgow, uh, the, the COP later in the year just to, to make a bit of a deal of it when they're there. I think they
3: should do it.
1: And I think that they pro- there's every chance that they will given these state I, agreements that they're doing.
3: I feel like they should do it. I feel like they should do it early. I feel like they should announce – I mean – if I was advising the Australian government, which obviously I'm not because I advise the Vanuatu government, I would advise them to announce it at Pacific Island Forum. When, and when's that? In August, first week of August, and then take it to Glasgow because it makes it look like they're playing by the rules. What is so dangerous about the carryover credit argument, what makes them look like an international pariah, is they are asking for a concession that no other country is asking for, it makes Australia look like a terrible outlier.
2: And then the, the, the amazing thing about all this is that Australia does that. And you know, I'm very interested in, in your sort of first hand experience of what people were saying uh, in the cafeterias and the sidelines of this conference about you know Australia's position. And then, of course, we see what has happened here over the summer. Yes. Uh, I was in uh, New York University the first week of January, and everywhere I went, people, as soon as they picked up, I had an Australian accent, whether it be in shops on the street uh, at the university. They would immediately say, "Oh, I'm so sorry. What's happening for your, mm. your, you know, your country's burning? What your, your government mm. are idiots? You know, yeah. these sorts of comments were quite frequent. Uh, really, yeah. a number of us were quite amazed about it. Um, I imagine the same sorts of sentiments uh, are, are being so. I don't expressed. know if you
3: saw this the statement that the Fiji government put out, just you know, saying sorry to the Australian people, but also saying. You know, not only are we sorry to the Australian people, but we also urge your government to think strongly about these issues in relation to climate change. So that is very much a thoughtful and engaged Pacific Islander position. You know, we are all in this together. And now this is not just an issue of us bearing the brunt of it, it is the fact that we are all in this shared kind of set of crisis. And there
2: have been a number of editorials from uh, prominent uh, media organisations and New York Times, The Economist, Mm. various other papers in in the UK and so forth, uh, you know, making the point this is what climate change looks like. You know, it's kind of the future arriving, as it were. Um,
3: And I think we haven't understood... I think Australians have not understood up until now the incredible fragility of the Australian ecosystem. I mean, we've had... 250 years of colonial set settlement. We've had a lot of environmental degradation that goes along with that. We've had a lot of land clearing. We've had, you know, and that's what we see. We really see the impacts of that attached to low levels of rainfall and of drought and of all of the upheaval of the weather system. So it's that combination of issues and the way that they're playing out. And I think we have, we're only just becoming aware at how much our sense of what an Australian life is, is going to profoundly alter. So I don't know about everybody else around the table, but I have had the most appalling summer, and I feel like one of the profound questions in my head is, what kind of summers are my kids going to have? You know, like yeah, yeah. really what's happened to the idea of the beach summer? Because maybe that's not a thing anymore.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't for us. We were going to a house, but it uh, ceased to exist. Um, you know, yeah. down the south coast. And this has uh been a, been a very common experience. Canberra's been a particularly uh you know yeah. dramatic place to it be through been. this summer. Yeah. Uh, and it really has affected I think the psychology of a lot of people. People are genuinely traumatised. If it hasn't been dust, it's been, you know, biblical style <laughs> hail destroying everything. Yeah. Um you know, it's uh it really has affected the whole debate, I think.
3: But we have this whole sense of what it looks like to work hard and then have rest and when we do that and what that looks like, and it's part of...
0: That is always the end of the year. Mm. Australia is blessed by having Christmas, summer holidays mm. break at the end of the year. And Morrison should get this. Like he he actually, I think, what do you think, Karen? has an understanding of the Australian psyche or an Australian psyche, middle Australia, quiet Australians, people having barbecues, things like that. Why, I think I know what your answer will be, Kieran, I'm asking you this is a sort of person who uh, monitors the Prime Minister. Why does this not seem to be going through into his language? And, and I guess my my suspicion is that he's, he's held hostage.
1: Yeah, it, partly that. But I think he and those that he's held hostage by in terms of some of their views uh, have been mugged by reality this some of that's what's happened, and as Siobhan has said. Some of the some, some of the fire impacts and so on, the the smoke, the dust, the heat. Uh, it's it's something that everyone's experienced. And uh, we were driving back uh, just after Christmas from very south uh, of Victoria Port Ferry up through uh, Melbourne and to Canberra, and I saw thousands, if not tens of thousands, of caravans, people with cars, boats, cars with boats, and so on, leaving them. Month holiday after a few days, escaping Malacuta and those other places. And they've had to drive back down the highway. And I thought to myself at the time, as I'm driving the kids in the back and, and, my, and with my wife, I thought this is going to hit them like a steam train. Mm-hmm. The, the, the annoyance, mm-hmm. the frustration. Mm-hmm. Whether they get all the science, they don't get the science. Whatever That's this exactly is going to smash yeah. them, and we've seen already yeah. the numbers in the polls, and whether that holds up remains to be seen. But certainly, the initial reaction has been fierce. So
3: I was in an I was in an evacuation centre. We went down the coast and were at Mystery Bay and got caught. And anyway, um, I was in an evacuation centre surrounded by people who were not, you know lefty university progressives by any stretch of the imagination and we're just dumbfounded and just desperately wanted a leader. You know, there's a, actually these pivotal moments where Australia ex- Australians actually just expect a leader to do something.
2: Hmm. And to speak for everyone as a were
3: Yeah, works. and just to be there as a presence. And they were ex- – and, you know – there's no power, there's no food, there's no fuel, and you need a leader. And there was no leadership. And it was a huge absence.
2: Do you think the PM, though, is on the right track when he's talking about, you know, doing more in adaptation and resilience? I mean... um Obviously, it doesn't go as far to the sorts of things you've been talking about, but it is part of the answer here is it not to be looking at the way uh, we occupy the country, the way you know planning laws operate, um, the way the building code operates, uh, the structure of our emergency services, our ability to fight fires. A number of these things are – they're all important things that can't be ignored here.
3: Mm. I mean, I think one of the really critical issues – issues that became really apparent was the boots on the ground issue, which I think is a really critical one that's going to need a lot of consideration, you know? I mean, Are you talking
2: about the defence forces or are you talking about a professional... Well, I don't know
3: what the answer is, but I do know that we had, you know, 110 fires raging across one state and we literally didn't have enough people. So for all of the giant jets that you want to bring in that are water bombing, you actually need people there at some level and that these fires are hugely dangerous. So we know from the 2003 Canberra bushfire, that was the first fire that was ever modelled where actually fire specialists learnt that fires create their own internal weather systems. But this is now absolutely true and people know this to be true. And what that means is that firefighting is extraordinarily dangerous. Mm. I don't know that we can be asking Volunteers to do the kind of Herculean efforts week after week after week in the way that they have been to combat that kind of scale of horror. Um, so maybe it is about professionalisation. I think this is a huge security issue for Australia. Maybe it's about training up um, the army so that they can come and be a backup.
2: What about uh, Mike Kelly, the member for Eden Monero's uh, idea of. Uh conscription I mean he wasn't necessarily advocating it but he was putting it on the table I think having people um, you know do the community service for a period in that kind of capacity
3: yeah I'm not sure I, do, I don't know what the answer is I just think that's got to be a part of a part of of, the, of what this
2: Royal Commission is looking at yeah and yeah. I
3: also think adaptation resilience um, I think resilience is a you know is a complicated term, I've written a whole paper about it, can sometimes be a little bit of a weasel word. One of those things that people like to use without having any really identifiable meaning sitting behind it, you know, we're going to build resilience, we're going to build back stronger. Okay, yes, but what if the underlying makeup of what's there is not correct? I think we actually have to start really having a very serious conversation about climate change and what the long-term impacts are going to be across the country. I think we have to have a really serious conversation around environmental management across Australia. I think we have to have a very serious conversation engaging climate scientists rather than just, you know, denying them or the kind of policy mix that's been going on for a long time. And I also think... um you know, we've got to situate ourselves, there's a whole range of security analysts in this building who would say this is a you know, this is a national security issue and it's a regional security issue and we've got to bring those framings to bear on this set of issues as well.
2: Yeah, all very big questions. Well, look, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Kieran Gilbert, Siobhan McDonnell and Peter Martin for joining us here on Democracy Sausage and thank you for your time. We'll talk to you again next week. And as I say, keep an ear out for a little Democracy Sausage Extra on Brexit, which we'll be doing uh, during the week uh, with the fabulous Rob Manwaring from Flinders University. Uh, And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us.